Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. From the studios of Messiah College, the School of the Prophets in Grantham, PA, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 19 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, we are in some nice new digs today. That's right. We've uh, relocated from the radio station, WVMM to the recording studio in the high center here on campus. Our trusty studio producer, Josh, got us an in. So we're working with some high-tech equipment with the goal of improving our sound quality. Many, many, many thanks to Josh for getting us the upgrade. Yeah, I knew I knew we were up to something good when we hired Josh. So nice, nice work, Josh. And it's very cool in here. We actually have like, uh, you know, Josh is behind the glass. Absolutely. You know, I, I love when I love when radio guys say like, you know, behind the glass is Josh, <laughs> you know, the, the producer. But today, Drew, we are talking about American profits. P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, <laughs> profits. People in United States history who have spoken truth to power. So, Drew, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is your favorite American prophet? That's a that's a good question. Very layered, very challenging. But uh, well, as most people know, I'm a colonial historian and I uh, work in Native America. So I'm going to go with the uh, with the Lenny Lenape prophet Neolin, uh, inspiration for uh, the Pontiac's Rebellion in many ways. Okay, so taking the Native American angle there in terms of uh, American prophets. Well done, well done. How about you, John? Well, certainly the guy we'll be focusing on today, Reinhold Niebuhr, comes to mind, but I can come up with a bunch of other ones. It kind of reminds me of a story a high school teacher once told me when I was grading at AP U.S. History exams in San Antonio. He was telling the story about one of the questions that he always asks potential teachers, teachers who are applying to work at his school. And as the chair of the department, he always asks them who is your favorite character in American history? And, you know, he gets a lot of it. George Washington's Abraham Lincoln's Rosa Park, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Martin Luther King Jr. He said, but one day he had a young teacher right out of college who said, my favorite person in American history is Eugene Debs. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Debs, he was a socialist candidate for president, probably one of the most famous socialists in American history. And the teacher was so taken back, you know, at least this is what he told us. He said, I've never had Debs before. You got the job, you know, just on the on the virtue of the fact that this teacher was so original in terms of who his favorite American hero was. So, you know, Debs, Niebuhr, uh, there's a lot of them, and I'll talk a little bit about them in my story today. But before we go any forward, let's take care of some business, Drew. That's right. As always, we are able to provide quality historical conversations through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi and Ron Schooler. We're also sponsored by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. And these are just a few from our cloud of generous supporters. 
If you're interested in helping our cause financially, just hop over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. Yeah, Drew, I am so thankful. I can't say how thankful I am for the growing number of supporters that we're getting on Patreon. I'm seeing those mugs all over social media. Of course, as I said last episode, I still do not own one of these mugs. So I'm getting a little bit jealous of all our patrons who have these mugs. I've yet to drink my morning coffee out of a Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast mug, Drew. So putting you on the spot there again. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a shout out on social media. You can head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast site and rate us or leave a comment. Every little bit helps. Yeah, absolutely. In this day and age, in this age of social media and the the digital medium that we're working with, a retweet or a Facebook post to one of your favorite episodes, that goes a long way. That's basically free advertising for us. So feel free to shout us from the mountaintops of social media. Yeah, Drew, and I noticed that you ditched the uh, mug question there. There was no response on your part. It was on my list of things to bring to the studio today. And and I'd like to point out, I have to take my daughter to daycare on my way here. And then I have some other work I have to do. I I wear many different hats. Okay, so our next episode, stay tuned for episode 20. It will be a whole entire episode devoted to Drew's excuses. (laughs) Well, Drew, on a more serious note, uh, we have our first documentary filmmaker on the show today. Martin Doblmeyer is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker who has a brand-new documentary out titled An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. And I know Martin has been traveling around the country doing screenings on the film before its broadcast premiere on public television in April 2017. Martin was gracious enough to provide us with a press copy of the film, so I actually had the privilege of watching it last night. And Drew, it is excellent. Martin managed to secure some serious commentators on the film, including Jimmy Carter, Cornell West, Andrew Young, the former Atlanta mayor and civil rights activist, uh, Susanna Heschel, who's actually a, a professor of Jewish studies and the daughter of the Jewish social critic Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a, a friend of Niebuhr. New York Times columnist David Brooks is on there, Niebuhr's daughter, Elizabeth Sifton. Stanley Hauerwas, who Time Magazine once labeled the greatest American theologian working today, is in the film. Andrew Basevich, some of you are familiar with his work on Niebuhr and foreign policy. This thing is loaded with great commentary. Well, you know, I haven't had a chance to see it yet because just as I haven't brought you a mug, you haven't yet shared the film. So we'll do a trade after the episode. I'm really excited to watch this film. But uh, in the meantime, I think you have a story for us today, John. America has always had its prophets. In the world of religion, prophets are spokespersons for the gods. They bring a divine message to the people. Anne Hutchinson, when put on trial by Puritan leaders in the 1630s, claimed that her so-called antinomian teachings, which, by the way, were delivered among audiences of women and men, were given to her directly by God. Think about the great evangelical revivalists such as Whitfield, Finney, Moody, Sunday, and Graham, who called upon Americans to repent of their sins and accept Jesus as their Savior. Then there was Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, who received visions from God directing him to a series of golden plates that, when translated, would provide the sacred text for his Mormon church. 
The Shawnee religious leader, Tenskwatawa, urged his Shawnee people to give up their dependence on European and American goods and practices. His prophecies, which were uttered from a native town in Indiana called Prophet Town, provided the religious impetus for a pan-Indian alliance led by his brother, Tecumseh, that would wage war against the United States in the early 19th century. Not all American prophets claim to have received direct revelation from God, but that does not mean that their exhortations have not been informed by some of our most sacred texts. When they appeal to the Bible, the writings of a particular religious tradition, or the scriptures of civil religion, such as the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, or the writings of the Founding Fathers, the prophetic tradition has been a fixture of American life. Prophets often appeal to the past in their efforts to move society forward. The Old Testament prophets were constantly calling the Hebrews to remember. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the law and the commandments. Remember the covenants you had made with your God. By appealing to a historic identity bound up with sacred texts, stories, and ideals, and then showing how society has strayed from this identity, Prophets call the nation to a greater sense of peace, harmony, justice, and hope. In the 18th century, the Quaker John Woolman, guided by his inner light or his conscience, traveled throughout British North America preaching against slavery, the slave trade, war, and economic oppression. Woolman would not use silverware because he knew that silver was dug up by slaves in the mines of South America. He would not eat sugar because it was harvested by slaves in the West Indies. He would not wear dyed clothes because of their association with luxury and materialism. Historian Thomas Slaughter perhaps put it best when he said that Woolman had a quote-unquote beautiful soul. Slavery led to all kinds of courageous moral stands by American prophets. William Lloyd Garrison publicly burned the Constitution of the United States because it did not prohibit this peculiar institution. In 1852, former slave-turned-abolitionist Frederick Douglass asked, What to a slave is the 4th of July? His speech was a stinging condemnation of the moral paradox at the heart of the American experiment. And then there were the Grimke sisters, Angelina and Sarah, who gave up their comfortable lives on a southern plantation to fight for African-American and women's rights. They spoke to mixed crowds of men and women and became the first women to testify before a state legislature about the evils of slavery. The American prophetic tradition continued into the 20th century. Dorothy Day, the leader of the Catholic Workers' Movement, fought for those on the margins of society, the poor and the oppressed, by challenging Catholics to consider the social demands placed on them by their faith. Martin Luther King Jr. urged Americans to consider the country's founding principles. He invoked Jefferson and Lincoln and the Declaration of Independence. At the same time, he called for the nation to return to Judeo-Christian principles about justice and equality. 
He made appeals to the words and ideas of Jesus, St. Paul, Augustine, Aquinas, and contemporary theologians like Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr. And speaking of Niebuhr, as historians, theologians, politicians, and most recently Martin Doblmeier has shown us in his film American Conscience, this son of German immigrants from Missouri spoke in a prophetic voice to remind us that when we fight for progress, we must always remember that progress has its limits. Niebuhr taught us that sin was an overlooked dimension of the human experience. Human beings could do virtuous acts, but societies were incapable of collective virtue. The pursuit of a utopia, according to Niebuhr, is a fool's errand. We need our prophets. Their stories teach us that there will always be times when speaking truth to power and the moral courage that comes with such an act are necessary to remind us of who we are as a people. Thanks, John. And now, on to our guest. Martin Doblemeyer is the founder of Journey Films, a television and film production company specializing in religion, faith, and spirituality. He has produced more than 30 documentary films that have aired on PBS, ABC, NBC, the BBC, and on broadcast outlets around the world. His film, The Power of Forgiveness, won many top awards and inspired a companion book. His documentary profile of the Washington National Cathedral won a regional Emmy. In all, Doblemeyer's films have won six Gabriel Awards for the nation's best film on a topic of religion, three awards at the U.S. International Film and Television Festival, the Sun Valley Film Festival, and many others. He joins us today to talk about his most recent film, American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. We are thrilled uh, to have Martin Doblemeyer here with us. We've already talked a little bit about Martin and his work. Uh, he is the filmmaker behind Reinhold Niebuhr, this new documentary, American Conscience, uh, Reinhold, the story of Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, welcome to the show, Martin. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, I know you've been traveling around the country screening this film. Uh, it's supposed to come out on uh, public television in April. And um, what's the response been so far? Can you give us a, you know, a, a sort of audience flavor of what the audience is looking like? No, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, we I'm committed to, I think it's 25 screening events all across the country. And um, uh, by, by and large, except on a handful of occasions, the houses have been packed. Wow. Uh, in, in many cases, it's been overflow. So they've actually had to go off and get other rooms and put video cameras into second rooms and everything. So it's been, it's been really quite interesting. I, I think what it really means is that here at the beginning of the 2017, this, this is um, a time when I think people really have a lot of questions about the social and political order in our country, and they're looking for people, voices, and, and I think theologically grounded voices to think about the major issues, the macro questions of their lives. And I, they, I, see, I, I see them uh, time and time again think that maybe Reinhold Niebuhr has something to say to them. Why you've done a lot of stories, a lot of documentaries on different people. I've noticed you've you know done one on, on Bonhoeffer. You've done a award-winning documentary on forgiveness, um, and you just answered this a little bit. But you know, 
what led you to Niebuhr? How do you, how, how you know, how did you, uh, how did you get attracted to this story, to Niebuhr's story, to a documentary on Niebuhr? Well, um, I had a, I was, I, I remember clearly I was home one night and I get a phone call from uh, a stranger whose name is Andrew Finstuen. And he identifies himself to me on the phone as a, as a Reinhold Niebuhr scholar. And I, and I do honestly get a lot of phone calls, people wanting to have me consider making a film about themselves or their families or somebody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but when, as I started to listen to Andrew talk about his admiration to, for Reinhold Niebuhr and Niebuhr's legacy, um, I started to take Andrew and the idea of it very seriously. I had read Reinhold Niebuhr in school. He had a deep impact on me. And I thought, absolutely. So I, I went to the shelf and I dusted off the books on Reinhold Niebuhr and started to think about it. And I thought, you know, this... This could be a really important film, and this could really be something that's typical for us in that we're always looking for good story ideas that combine religion, faith, spirituality, in a practical way how it's lived out in the world. And so uh, at that time, on the phone, we decided to get together and meet and speak face-to-face, and we did that, and everybody was pretty much on board from the very beginning, and it actually after that, it took off pretty quickly. Wonderful, wonderful. Now... As you know, we're an American history podcast, so some of our listeners, our regular listeners, may not, maybe have never even heard of Reinhold Niebuhr, or else uh, maybe have heard the name or don't know who this guy actually was and his significance. Um, Tell us a little bit, you know, I I know you've done a whole documentary on this guy, but in a brief snippet, who was Reinhold Niebuhr? What was his sort of central uh, theological, ethical kind of message to America in, uh, you know, the 20th century? Well, if you don't know a lot about Reinhold Niebuhr, you are not alone. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, when I walked into public television to present the idea of doing this documentary film on, on Reinhold Niebuhr, none of those people had really any significant clue who he was. A few of them had maybe known that he was the author of the famous Serenity Prayer, that was some kind of grounding place. But honestly, people um, did not know who he was. And so I had to begin from, from you know, block number one to explain who Reinhold Niebuhr is. And he was the great public theologian of the 20th century. And his writings about, um, about uh, our human nature, his writings about the abuses and, uh, and uses of power, his writings about the potential for democracy in America, original sin, all of these things... Um, uh, extensive volumes of writings that he gave, national talks all across the country in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that wound up, wind up influencing presidents. Martin Luther King becomes deeply influenced by uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's writings and thinkings. So he has so much impact, and yet at the same time, here at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, it's pretty clear that his name, except within the scholarly world, uh, has begin, begun to wane. And so we thought doing this film on Reinhold Niebuhr would have a lot of benefits for a lot of people. Now, you mentioned he is America's greatest public theologian, right, of the 20th century. Um, but his extent reaches beyond just kind of Christian circles, right? I mean, this guy this guy is, is, is a public intellectual that both both Christians, people of faith— and secular people are listening to. So, so what do you think, what do you think was the, you know, the, the, the point of his message that was able to transcend uh, beyond just the faith community? Or maybe was it something about America at that time that was a little bit different? And, and why aren't Christian theologians able to sort of have such a kind of uh, influence, do you think, today? 
Well, I think there's a line that we have in the film that Reinhold Niebuhr was delighted that there was a whole group of people in America called Atheists for Niebuhr. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, that was uh, something that he really he relished that idea because you, it was possible to read his writings about politics, human nature, and, and, and people will say that some of his writings, especially a book called The Irony of American History, could be maybe one of the most significant, important writings ever about American foreign policy. So here's a theologian who's looking at social order, political interaction between great nations and powers, the rise of the Cold War. These are significant political, geopolitical issues. And this theologian has such a unique and universal perspective on all of this that he's very much in demand by presidents. Uh, the State Department is asking him to sit down and talk about how we should be creating policy, uh, global policy for America in the post-World War II era. So you're right, his reach goes way beyond the pulpit. Well, that's where he became most well-known. But the truth of the matter is his, his, these conversations about the universal text of who we are as human beings and how we have to interact as, as human beings and individuals and as nations, that really galvanized a lot of people. It's, it's not the kind of conversation we hear about today, and I think in some ways at our own loss. Why do you think a Christian theologian? I was, I was. You might be familiar with this recent article. I read it a while ago in Harper's uh, by by the um, Baylor English professor, a Christian, Alan Jacobs, talking about uh, the lack of Christian public theologians kind of writing and speaking out there today. Do you think? Do you think the the way our culture is right now? Do you think the possibility of another Niebuhr? Uh, you know, think we can have another Niebuhr, or or was he just a product of his particular moment? Well, well, I, I think there's elements of both, all of that because um, uh, I, Reinhold Niebuhr reaches. I think he reaches the pinnacle of his fame, notoriety in the late 1940s, early 1950s. He winds up on the cover of Time magazine in, in 1948. Um, when they were looking for a subject, a person to put on the cover of their magazine for their four, uh, 25th anniversary issue. They pick Reinhold Niebuhr. Imagine that. A theologian winds up on the cover of Time magazine. Not a, not a writer, a not a musician, a Hollywood celebrity or something. But they put a theologian on the cover of Time magazine because he was that important at his time. And his impact was so great. It's a, it's a very different time today in America. Back in the 1940s and 50s when he's riding very high... I think it was understood that America was a Christian nation, especially mainstream Protestantism, was the dominant and understood faith tradition in America. I don't think that we can claim that can be claimed really in quite the same way anymore. So that's one big difference. And the media was looking at that time for a voice who could speak to that mainline Protestant, mainline Christian group with a sort of an articulated idea and concept about how he could bring together philosophy and history and understanding of the world and speak to that specific audience in language, metaphoric language like grace and redemption, that they all understood so clearly. It's a different time in America today. We don't really look for those kind of voices. And even more importantly, look how the media's changed in these last uh, right, right. number of decades. The, back in the 1940s and 50s when Reinhold Niebuhr is at his pinnacle, uh, you had a handful of television networks, you had a handful of radio networks, a handful of major publications. Um, if they liked you, if they loved you, if you were one of their darlings, uh, you became famous. And everybody knew who you were at that particular time. The, the, the media today is so dispersed. There's so many different kinds of outlets. 
it's very difficult to have a dominant voice like you would have back in the 1940s and 50s in Reinhold Niebuhr. And especially today, I think that the, the media in particular doesn't have their, that sense of religious literacy that it might have had back in Niebuhr's time. They just don't think the same way in terms of the media and the coverage that they want to offer. They don't think the same way. They don't talk the same language. So I think it makes it very difficult for you to, us to have today in America the same kind of uh, public theologian that we, we experienced back in Reinhold Niebuhr's day. Yeah, that's very that's fascinating. The part about the way in which newspapers sort of promoted uh, the press, sort of promoted these people. It also came to mind, uh, you know, Billy Graham, right? I think it was his forty-seven Los Angeles Crusade, right, where William Hearst, the newspaper magnate, says Puff Graham, right? Same type of thing, right? Although for Niebuhr, it was you know the mainline Protestants, which in many ways, recent scholarship suggests that mainline Protestants in the mid twentieth century were really at the center of American culture since the evangelicals had for the most part kind of uh, gone into their own sub worlds after the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the scopes trial. So that's a fascinating, uh, fascinating way of thinking about I, uh, the differences. Yeah. It's, and in many ways, I mean, I think, you know, the celebrity status that Reinhold Niebuhr had in the 1940s and 50s really kind of is a microcosm for this huge shift in America. But I, I also think that uh, we don't want that same. We, we're very anxious about having that kind of voice speak to us anymore. It draw, it did, the media, by and large, is more concerned about the backlash to that kind of yeah. voice than it is. And it doesn't identify. Um, uh, religious people as the kind of people that can raise the media up. And what I mean by that is you, you, you know that uh, Time Magazine at that time felt as though that they put Reinhold Niebuhr on the cover of Time Magazine. Millions of people will be directed towards that magazine. Millions of people who are fans of Reinhold Niebuhr. The same thing with uh, Billy Graham at his time. They felt The media felt as though if we could get Billy Graham to sort of participate in who we are and what we're doing, that'll raise us up. I don't think I don't think the media today looks at religious figures uh, in the same way that they can really benefit from the opportunity to use let their their own kind of media be an expression of their voice. They they see that more of as a risk than as a benefit. Sure, Drew, you had a question. Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking a lot about uh, Niebuhr's celebrity, but uh, you know, there's there was I guess a certain amount of backlash, and and I was just wondering if you could explain why Niebuhr was on the FBI watch list. He, he was. Uh, isn't that fascinating? He winds up on the FBI watch list uh, early on, too, in the 1930s, um, uh, because he's involved in a lot of organizations that at that time were under suspicion. Reinhold Niebuhr comes out of this social gospel tradition uh, that feels as though that, that expresses itself in the way that it's going to interact with the world. And in the 1930s, after a lot of consideration about how the politics of America uh, was now leaning so effectively towards capitalism and the abuse of people, the average person in America was not benefiting from the from the opportunities that were there, but in fact were actually becoming subjugated by capitalism. Reinhold Niebuhr finds himself leaning as a political politically towards socialism, and he joins a number of different organizations and groups. And that, those that those affiliations wind up getting him on the FBI watch list. What's interesting is that. I, I didn't realize this, but I guess once you get on that FBI watch list, you don't really get off. It's not like a renewal thing. Uh, once you get on that list, you wind up staying on that list. And over the course of his professional career, they say that uh, the, the FBI watch list, the, uh, the, the file on Niebuhr was as much as 600 pages long. Uh, 
and that they had been dealt they had delved into interviews with uh, his his fellow um, uh, scholars and professors at Union Theological Seminary had gone to the places where he had actually given talks, interviewed a number of different people. It was very, very difficult. We were very suspicious of everybody, and Niebuhr winds up on this list. And the great irony here, as that's a favorite word of Reinhold Niebuhr's irony, the great irony for Reinhold Niebuhr's story is that while he's on this FBI watch list, he's being courted by the State Department for his counsel about how we should restructure American thinking globally in the post-World War II era. How should we be thinking about the creation of a state of Israel? And he even goes so far as being nominated and then awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by um, Lyndon Johnson in the in early 1960s. Um, at the same time, he's on an FBI watch list. So if you think that our government is all interconnected, it's clear that one hand doesn't talk to the other hand, or that uh, President Johnson simply wanted to honor, honor a man that he felt as though was making a major contribution, despite the fact that down the street at the FBI offices, they still had him under suspicion. That's fascinating. I wonder how many um, people who were awarded the, the Medal of Freedom were on the FBI watch list. <laughs> and you know something? We're, we're taping this the day after James Comey uh, has just testified uh, uh, to the House about Donald Trump, you know, so so I don't think it's anything new that the branches of government or the the FBI and the president or the FBI and other branches of government are uh, not in sync on some of these things. Yeah, and they they don't they clearly don't talk to each other. All they each have their own prejudice. Either that could be true too, right. but also to that. Um, uh, well, my hope is that as we enter into this phase now of how we're going to be governed in 2017 forward for the next number of years, that those who express dissent don't mind, especially who do it from a theological basis, don't find themselves on an FBI watch list. Yeah, interesting, really interesting. You mentioned earlier in the interview, Martin, um, about Martin Luther King and Niebuhr's influence on King. Uh, Cornell West is excellent. Just a teaser here. Cornell West is excellent in the film. Uh, on some of these points. Uh, but what role did Niebuhr play in some of the thinking of King? Uh, and maybe even more broadly, uh, did Niebuhr have a significant role to play in the civil rights movement as a whole? Well, well, Niebuhr's interaction with uh, black rights in America, the civil rights movement, it's a fascinating arc when you look at it, because it goes all the way back to his pastoral days when he's a pastor uh, at Bethel Church in Detroit. He gets very active uh, identifying this this flood of blacks who've come up from the South to get involved in the burgeoning auto industry. And he's out on the forefront in Detroit, speaking out louder and more articulately than any of the other pastors out there. He's speaking out against the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. He's getting involved in, in uh, the, the administration of the city of Detroit. He's on panels and boards and committees. And he gets identified by the mayor of Detroit to be on an interracial committee when they come up to analyze what's happening racially in the city of Detroit. And, uh, and the, it's, it's known that the black community in, in Detroit at that time in the 1920s really saw Reinhold Niebuhr as a great friend, an active, involved friend in their cause. Now he moves to New York in the 19, uh, 1928, 1929, he comes to New York and he gets involved in Union Theological Seminary, which is where he'll be now for the next 30 years, right. teaching at Union Seminary. Um, and his book, Moral Man and Immoral Society, which is released in 1932, provides a lot of the structural ammunition 
that Martin Luther King has been looking for and how to frame and think about what will eventually become a civil rights movement in this country. So Niebuhr's writings have enormous impact. Niebuhr himself writes a number of different articles, but his involvement in the civil rights movement as we know it really comes as offering a voice and a direction, an idea, a concept for Martin Luther King to implement. Uh, but, Mar but Reinhold Niebuhr himself is, seems to be curiously absent from it. He's, he, he has this stroke in 1952. It clearly, um, it, it clearly compromises his ability to get out and physically engage. And that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, those who are supporting of Reinhold Niebuhr's legacy related to race will say, they'll immediately identify he had this struggle because after 1952 he had, he had this stroke and he wasn't able to get out and do as much as he had been in the past. But he had opportunities at that time to do certain things. And, and as, as Cornell West very articulately expresses, he, he maybe didn't do as much as he could have in his later life. Sure. How about King? How about, how about his relationship with King or at least the relationship between Niebuhr's ideas and King's, uh, King's um, thought? Just to be clear, Reinhold Niebuhr and Martin Luther King, as far as anyone knows, never met. Okay. Um, they never had cause to get together, although it's true that Martin Luther King invited Reinhold Niebuhr to lend his name and his presence, if he was willing to do that, to the civil rights movement and on specific occasions to specific actions, which Reinhold Niebuhr never was able to do. Um, Reinhold Niebuhr was a very close friend of uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel. Um, they, when Niebuhr taught at Union Theological Seminary, just down the road a little bit was uh, Jewish Theological Seminary there in, um, on the Upper West Side of New York. Heschel got very involved in the Civil Rights Movement. There's some great photographs of Rabbi Heschel walking right alongside Martin Luther King in Selma and coming out in support of the Civil Rights Movement. And, and, and the inner circle of the Civil Rights Movement loved the fact that Heschel was there. They, they, they were disappointed that Reinhold Niebuhr didn't come there, but Heschel and Niebuhr would get together, and so Heschel would learn about the strategies and how people were thinking and the and the day-to-day -day activity within the civil rights movement. He would learn that, uh, actually, more from Heschel than anybody else. Sure. So there, there, there's a lot of... There, if, you, if you had hopes that Reinhold Niebuhr would come out and campaign and use his leverage and his celebrity and his fame in support of the Reinhold... Uh, in support of civil rights... More often than not, you're, you're disappointed at his later le legacy. Uh, but certainly the early Reinhold Niebuhr was out on the forefronts all the time. Sure, sure. Well, our time's just about up here, uh, Martin. Let me ask you one sort of really big question here at the end. Um, and I know you've touched on this in numerous uh, ways throughout your other answers. But what, you know, why, do we need to, why do we need to reckon with Niebuhr? What is his message for us today? Well, what's really interesting to me is that uh, I finished this film off at the end of, uh, uh, end of October 2016 and announced that I was going to go out and do a, a series of screening events with the film leading up to the broadcast. And the phones just, once, uh, once the election happened, the phone just started ringing off the hook. And so I've had the privilege now of being out almost night after night now in events all across the country, speaking with people, engaging with people. And what I think people see in the legacy of Reinhold Niebuhr uh, is a sense of personal and national humility. The, the notion that um, we, we all carry within us some element of original sin and that the way that we need to structure our thinking about ourselves, the way that we interact with each other, and in particular how that translates into foreign and domestic policy, could learn a lot from Reinhold Niebuhr. I think he was someone who deeply cared about his faith and how it interacted with the social and political environments of his day. 
And I think the way that he thought about us as human beings, our nature, and the way that we too, too often abuse power and at the same time raise ourselves up as we're pushing others down. I think that kind of strategy has been lost in our culture today. And I think a little bit of Reinhold Niebuhr would do us all a little bit of good right now. Very well put. Thank you so much. When does the film appear on uh, PBS or public television? It, it starts airing on public television in April. Um, the DVD is available now. We're getting you know, orders for the DVD. If I can mention this, am I allowed to mention this? Absolutely. It's, this it's, is your uh, chance to plug it. And there it is. Well, we can, folks can write to me at journeyfilms, J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-F-I-L-M-S dot com. Uh, that's where we have the film. And there's also, I wanted to, uh, to mention a companion book. So what happened was uh, with all these wonderful interviews that I did with David Brooks and Cornell West and President Jimmy Carter and the civil rights leader Andrew Young, um, all the interviews, extensive interviews that I did were compiled into a book and then recrafted into a real, I think, a wonderful piece uh, by a, a young scholar by the name of Jeremy Sabala, uh, who's written the companion book for the film. So the DVD and the book are all available at journeyfilms.com. Now, does the, the interviews in the book then go beyond the interviews that are on the actual film? They're the entire interview. Yeah, actually, the, on, the, on, the, on the DVD itself, um, it, the film is one hour. And so, obviously, a lot of it can't right. make it into the film. So, the, the film, the DVD itself has another hour's worth of extended material that we've collected as a result of doing the, all these interviews. Plus, the book itself has uh, not only uh, much more of the interviews, but also a wonderful expository about all of, of what it means. You know, a really wonderful introduction to who Reinhold Niebuhr is for the 21st century. That sounds excellent. Well, I know you're a busy man. It's, uh, it definitely sounds like that. Thank you so much for carving out some time for us, Martin. This has been a pleasure for me. Thank you for your good questions and the interest that you have. I, and, I really appreciate it. And the film's coming out in April, journeyfilms.com. Go get the book. Uh, our guest has been Martin Dobelmeyer, uh, who has a, a wonderful new film on Reinhold Niebuhr coming out. Thanks again. Thank you. My pleasure. Drew, great interview. you got to see this film, Drew. It's, it's, it's outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. Well, send it over to me. I'll put it in the DVD player. I'll sit down, make some popcorn, and I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I was really excited to learn that uh, there's, there's these interviews with all these people. Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, Andrew Young, um, David Brooks, you know, Cornell West, that, you know, they're, they're so short on the movie, but that there's this, this uh, DVD feature where we get to listen to the whole uh, interview and then we get to, to read the even longer interviews. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to know, Drew, too, that, um, you know, I, I, I saw your eyes perk up. It's good to know that you can, you can be on the, uh, on the FBI watch list and you can still win the Medal of Freedom. So there's hope for you yet, there's Drew. There's hope for me yet. <laughs> well, this, once again, this was a phenomenal episode, I think. Martin was excellent, our first documentary filmmaker that we had a chance to interview. Any final thoughts, Drew? I was very impressed and very enthusiastic about the contemporary relevance of a lot of the things he had to say, you know, and, and I, I mean, I know both you and I are on Twitter and in our lives and in our work looking at, at a landscape that is a little bit, maybe I can say a little bit grim. And it's, it's nice to see that uh, some people who are speaking truth to power coming back in vogue uh, in this particular moment. It's so amazing, um, you know, just teaching American history. I, I throw this out every now and then on social media. You know, the things that you're teaching, whether it be in the 18th century, the 19th century, 
you know, sometimes you think you're like teaching contemporary events. And sometimes I even struggle to keep things in the 18th century or keep things in the 19th century because it has such contemporary relevance. And I think that Niebuhr is definitely an example. I loved Martin's final comment there about, you know, the, the emphasis on humility, the emphasis on bringing those kinds of virtues into the public debate. I think that's what Niebuhr teaches us today more than anything else. So get out there and see that film. American Conscience, the story of Reinhold Niebuhr. It will be on a public television station near you, but also contact Martin, get the DVD and so forth. So I guess that's a wrap for today, Andrew. That's a wrap. Well, thank you again for listening. Thank you for all our loyal supporters out there. It's been a great episode. And remember, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We also want to thank Jay Eldred for his support. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you download your podcasts so that others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded here on campus at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Martin Doblemeyer. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.